Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Little Heart by Georgina Bruce This woman liked to break things. She'd always liked breaking things ever since she was a child. Breaking, unmaking, unfolding, undoing, prizing off, detaching, violently abstracting, dropping, smashing, crushing, agitating, neglecting, disconnecting. Whatever it took. She liked to break things with precision. She liked the moment of breakage. The moment when the broken thing came into existence and the thing it was before ceased to exist. She said, only when something breaks can you finally understand its true function and character. It's a process of physical deduction. It's graphic. She explained how she would pull the transistors out of radios, cut off her doll's hands with scissors, slice worms in half with a penknife. But it's unpredictable, like splitting the atom. Such a tiny thing. What a big surprise inside. She would say this sort of thing in classes and her students would take notice. They hung off her words. She would see them in the bargain shop on Saturday afternoons buying cheap crockery for smashing. Break plates, she told them. Break everything in the house. Plates were one thing. But what this woman, let's call her Anna, Anna really wanted to break were mirrors. And not just mirrors. She wanted to break windows. She wanted to break a house in half, tear it apart in her hands, just like tearing dough, except it would be floorboards and shingles and furniture, stretching and breaking, and people falling out. She wanted to break noses. She wanted to break things made of glass and things made of bone. She had a passion for it. Passion ran in her family. Her mother had been passionate. She'd been an actress briefly and she'd starred in a film that had been popular for a while the year Anna turned seven. It was a black-and-white film, because in those days, they were all black-and-white. Her mother won an award for acting in it, a silver twist of metal on a wooden plinth. It was given pride of place in their sitting room, placed high up on a shelf. Anna was forbidden from touching it, of course. She'd been taken to see the film in a picture house, but her father had removed her when she became disturbed and agitated as the doctor said later, pulling on his nose in an unpleasant manner. The film's themes and images were certainly too adult for a small child to appreciate, even one as precocious as Anna. Perhaps her parents hadn't realised how inappropriate it was to take her to the picture house that night. Anna was oversensitive, liable to make a drama over the littlest thing. Anna remembered that evening as a fulcrum upon which the world balanced. From that point it tipped and swung between two dimensions. There was the real world that she had relied upon, and then there was a horrible new dimension. It was the sight of her mother on screen that had precipitated the breakdown. The woman looked like her mother, her exact identical twin. But Anna saw she was wrong. It was not her mother. She saw that her mother had disappeared, been forced out by someone else. Someone who inhabited her completely and drove her to terrible extremes. There was one scene in particular, a celebrated scene, that had terrified Anna beyond her ability to endure, beyond the possibilities of her father's presence to console. In fact, it was then Anna realised she was alone in the world. Early on in the film, 
The wrong mother is seen standing alone in a dining room. She is newly married. She wears a long black nightdress, sheer lace and silk trailing about her bare feet. Her lips and nails are painted red, but on film they look black. There's the sound of breaking glass. The camera pulls back to take her in. She's dropping wine glasses onto the stone floor. A piece of glass skims the top of her foot and a black wet seam opens. A ball of blood runs down between her toes. She doesn't react. She keeps dropping glasses onto the floor until there are shards and splinters and chunks of broken glass glinting all around her. Her feet are cut and bloodied. The camera shows us her hands crossed with scars and wet with blood. But it's her face that arrests the viewer. Her eyes. Her pupils are dark liquid, haloed by ice, and the expression in them, she is lost inside herself, her madness. When Anna saw this, she knew she'd been wrong about everything. No one could now be trusted. Her mother could not even be trusted to remain housed in her own body. Anna guessed it was then, at the height of her distress in the picture house, that her long, confusing estrangement from her mother had begun. It had budded out from that moment finally fruiting when Anna left home at seventeen, and then hardening as the years went by and drew the two women further and further apart. When Anna's mother died, Anna realised that she remembered the facsimile, the creepy ersatz mother more vividly and powerfully than the real thing. Anna thought she was nothing like her mother. On the other hand, she wasn't completely sure. She sometimes wondered if she was the rightful inhabitant of her body or whether another person was simply putting her on and off like a coat. It seemed to her that it was impossible to know. She could be a character in a film like her mother had been, celluloid and ink instead of flesh and bone. Of course, Anna would prefer a beautiful film, like the one with all the thin, good-looking sad people having a party, while a massive asteroid hurtles towards the earth. If she died that way, would she know? Would there be time in the moment of death to see exactly what had made her tick with life? She hoped it would be a big surprise. She hoped when death came, she would be able to leave the machine of her body and enter the soft machine of the sky. She worried she would grieve for her body, not that it was a remarkable or beautiful body. If anything, she loathed it for its ugliness. But there was no knowing if you could do anything worthwhile without a body. It seemed like you probably needed one. Then again, what if she were just like her mother, a collection of images layered over one another, one over another to create the illusion of moving and talking? Then her ugly body might last forever, like her mother's body was still always, walking around an old haunted house, wearing strange old-fashioned clothes, and speaking in an odd, pretty voice. Anna had recently seen her mother's dead body in a casket, her face waxy and coated in makeup. She had once again put on a different body, only this one looked nothing like her. It seemed to have nothing to do with her at all. Anna's mother had been found half-naked on the kitchen floor, surrounded by broken glass. The death certificate said natural causes. The doctor told Anna she'd had a stroke, a massive one. She said it would have killed her instantly. A funeral attracted quite a crowd, mostly extended family, some of whom had flown in from Israel and claimed to remember meeting Anna as a young girl. They spoke to her in Hebrew, and Anna shook her head. 
but you used to be absolutely fluent. They prompted her with words and sayings, trying to coax the little girl out of her. It was impossible. They remembered a different child altogether. Anna was quite sure that none of these people had ever sung to her, dandled her on their laps, or listened enraptured to her childish recitation of poems and songs in their language. Those things had never happened. However, when pressed, Anna admitted she remembered nothing much of her childhood before the trauma of the picture house. Everything that came before then had been erased from her mind. She guessed her family were disappointed to see that she had not lived up to her mother's beauty. No one mentioned Anna's father. No one ever spoke of him, not since the day he'd left. Anna wondered if he'd be at the funeral, but she wouldn't have recognised him even if he had been. She couldn't remember what he looked like, only his handsome, serious eyes and the gloss of his hair. The family were kind and made a fuss over Anna, but she was embarrassed by their sympathy. She didn't want it. They thought she must be broken-hearted, but what she had felt most in the few days after her mother's death was a strange, heady kind of freedom. The doctor called it shock. She felt herself expanding, growing taller. She walked faster, feeling that the range of her legs and arms had increased, that there was energy powering through her. She grew in strength and stature. She decided her mother's death was the best thing that had ever happened to her, and rather than sympathy, she wanted a celebration. Of course, someone spoke of the film. Although it had been mostly forgotten by the rest of the world, the family still thought it wonderful that one of theirs had been famous and celebrated. Anna avoided those conversations, but was prompted to recall she still had a copy of the film on videotape. She couldn't think why she'd kept it all these years. She'd kept it even after the video player became obsolete and she'd thrown all her other tapes away. But she'd never even taken it from the back of the shelf where it was hidden. She wasn't afraid to watch it. It was just irrelevant, of no interest. It couldn't hurt her, break her, psychically dislocate her, force her out of her body and into her previous incarnation, a child screaming in the cinema, wetting her pants her father pinning her arms behind her back. Of course not. The past was over, and there was nothing to be frightened of, and Anna had made her peace, more or less, with her own self now. Despite all her failures, she'd survived nearly sixty years of life. She made art, she was good at it, and validated for it, and paid. Now her mother was finally gone, leaving behind a space for Anna to stretch out into. Why should she put herself through the experience of watching the film? She decided she never would. She would find it and throw it away. Better still, she would smash the casing and unspool the tape and set it on fire. But that is not what happened. The wrong mother breaks a mirror and her face is fractured into a thousand pieces. The screen is full of pieces, a cacophony of faces... Perhaps the film was too grown up for you, Anna's father said. You embarrassed your mother. You embarrassed me. Everyone was looking at you. Anna associated this memory with the taste of raspberries and remembered her father crushing up tablets into red syrup using the back of a spoon. For a while afterwards, a long time, she felt she was breathing underwater. Everyone's voices streamed in distorted bubbles towards a surface she could not break. The wrong mother wakes up in the middle of the night, 
She lights a candle. Her husband is nowhere to be seen. As she casts the candle round, it sheds light and definition on the faces in the wallpaper, and the faces in the crumpled sheets, and the faces in the grain of the wood on the door. She walks, barefoot as always, through the house, holding her candle bravely in front of her. She's looking for him. She whispers his name. Down the staircase, and then across the great hall, and into the kitchen, where a fire still glows in the range. But where is he? She opens the door to the cellar. Darkness. The candle sputters, but the light holds enough for the wrong mother to pick her way down the stairs. Halfway down, she almost slips. She clutches at the banister. It's velvety with moss. There's water lapping at her feet. Then her candle's blown out. When the light next comes, she's walking through water up to her waist, wading out onto a small sandy beach, beyond which another house stands. It's identical to her own house. There are lights on in all the windows. She's wearing the black lace nightdress again, only now it is soaked through and clinging to her frozen skin. There's a sudden black flapping of wings and the screen is full of birds pecking and hopping, their eyes glinting cruelly until somehow they resolve themselves into the shape of a man. Anna's father had been nothing like that man. Of this, Anna was quite certain, but she watched him closely all the same. Anna's father was handsome and smelled like the inside of his briefcase, paper and ink. He wore a heavy watch that had to be wound twice a day. He gave Anna books on her birthday and at Christmas, called her little heart and little thing, and said she was pretty when she knew she was not. When she told him she planned to become an artist, he didn't laugh, but after the incident in the picture house, he was different. He was a photograph fading, a memory of a father. He began to remind Anna of the man in the film, the feathered man with his cruel beak. It was silly, really, just the way he looked at her sometimes. Since Anna was under sedation, she didn't keep regular waking and sleeping hours. She moved through the days in a syrupy fugue, not quite knowing if it was time for breakfast or time to go to bed. When she woke up in the middle of the night, she thought it could just as easily be the middle of the day. Perspective was distorted. She would spend long hours sitting in front of a mirror, in a low light, watching her face become a stranger's face. She watched her father's face just as intently every time she had a chance. She sometimes thought she saw her father's eye glint glossy black and the dull sheen of his beak, the tender attachments where smooth beak grew from soft, tiny feathers. Even in the daytime, Anna's father grew darker and bigger. Or was it that Anna was growing smaller and lighter? Like Alice, she was always too big or too small or too far away, or too dissolved into the air, or something. Anna woke up in the middle of the night. She was too weak and dizzy to remember her dream, but certain things came back to her, the sound of a door slamming, and the knowledge that he was in the house, and that he wanted her for something, that he had broken her mother wide open, and now it was Anna's turn. In the dream, she remembered seeing his face looming towards her, his beak about to pierce the flesh of her cheek. His wings were enormous, his feathers were dirty and smelled of trash. After the dream, 
Anna was desperate to see her father right away, just to prove to herself that he was her father and not a terrible bird thing. She would sneak into her parents' room, quickly look upon his handsome sleeping face and be relieved of the evil dream. But when she had tiptoed across the landing, she saw a light edging the heavy door and heard what sounded like a whispered argument. They argued all the time in those days. Anna didn't want to see her parents while they were awake. She was afraid of their anger, knowing from experience it could be deflected onto her simply because she was there. But she was far more afraid of the thing her father had been in her dream. She had to see him. So she pushed open the door. At first, she didn't understand. Then she realized she wasn't awake after all, and the dream was still inside her, dreaming her out. There was a black cloak of feathers over the bed, lustrous and crawling with lice. Her mother was naked on all fours facing the door. There was blood on her beautiful face and breasts and arms. Anna's father was behind her mother, rocking back and forth from his hips. It wasn't her father. It was the dream of her father as a bird, as the man-bird from the film. He looked at Anna, and his cruel face twisted into a smile. He licked his lips. He pushed her mother's head down to the feathers and rocked faster as he watched Anna watching him. She felt paralyzed, unable to breathe, impossible to even close her eyes. She hated his gleeful expression, the noises he was making, the way his claws dug into the back of her mother's head. Anna concentrated on moving just one part of herself, her little finger. If she could do it, she'd wake up. But it wasn't possible. Later, she remembered this moment not as a dream, but as though it were a film stopped in the middle of a scene. The actor immobilized, her face embalmed in its expression of horror, yet her father and mother were the real show, images moving fast enough to blur skin and feathers, blood and tears. Anna was paused in her place, then suddenly, without warning, the film unstuck. She took a deep breath, clenched her fists, turned, ran. It was a dream, her child's imagination running riot, the strong sedatives enveloping her in their heavy weirdness. Even the next afternoon when she pulled a soft black feather from her thigh, leaving a little bloody hole, Anna could see that this was only because she had mixed up dreams with films and fantasy with reality. She had invented everything wicked little fantasist that she was. She always believed it was this that had driven her father away, her ugliness, her madness that night. He had somehow known how disgusting she was, and this was why, the next morning, he was gone. In the days after the funeral, Anna's new energy wore thin. She talked too much in class, was impatient, accused her students of being intellectually weak, lacking in purpose. She mocked their work, sent them away with her laughter ringing in their ears. Her head of department said she was too harsh. There had been complaints. Anna counted with passion. She just wanted them to find fractures in their protective middle-class veneer. Find where it hurts, then dig away there with the sharpest thing you can find, she told them. But her students had trouble recognizing their own fault lines. They defaulted to physical violence, to accidents. They were always coming to class with bruises and cuts in their arms in slings. One time... She was speaking with a student she hadn't seen for a while. I had a heart attack, he told her. She wanted to ask him, and did it work? 
Did it open you up? Instead, she said, show me the scar. He lifted his T-shirt and she let her eyes trace the sore red wheel bisecting his chest. She wanted to slide a craft knife along its length and lever him open again. The head of department told Anna to take some time off. Her family bereavement is a serious matter, she said. Perhaps Anna should talk to someone. By someone, she meant, of course, a therapist of some kind. You don't seem yourself, she said. Anna said she was fine. Who was she if not herself? But she didn't want to hear the answer to this question. She thought she already knew the answer. Not that she could prove it. But it seemed to her she was less real every day. She thought her skin had changed, that her eyes had grown darker. At times she noticed her movements were almost imperceptibly jerky, as though she were an image stuttering on screen. A series of images layered one over the other, one after another, to create the illusion of her body, just like her mother. To prove she was really nothing like her mother, Anna knew she would have to watch the film. And once she had taken the tape down from the shelf, Anna realised she had no choice. The tape had a certain weight, an animus that Anna responded to. She was an artist after all. Maybe it wouldn't be such a frightening thing to watch this film again now as an adult. She'd no doubt laugh at the stupid special effects and wobbly scenery and terrible acting. Perhaps she wouldn't even recognise what had frightened her back then. It was only the irrationality of a child who didn't understand what it means to play act at being someone else. A sick child who couldn't understand the difference between a film, dream and the real world. It was all in the past and there was nothing to be frightened of. In fact, Anna suspected that once enough time has elapsed, the past is erased and collapses out of existence. Time breaks everything. Time is really just another word for breakage. Every hour self-destructs. Every second is irretrievably snapped and broken with the ticking of a watch. Anna had to go into the cellar to find the video player which was bigger and heavier than she remembered. It took a while to make it work. The draw mechanism was jammed and she had to unscrew the front of it and put it back together. When she put the tape into the player, she found it had not been rewound and it began to play from the middle of the film, the part after the wrong mother washes up on the beach and follows the wrong man to the wrong house. Anna felt quite calm looking at the wrong mother's face. It was the man who frightened Anna now. The wrong mother has to be punished for leaving her room. There are intimate sacrifices to be made. Her tongue, her hair, her eyes. But for now, they're dancing. He is an excellent dancer. He turns her round the floor until she's dizzy, clinging onto his shoulders, falling against him. The film is not explicit, but somehow the scene is erotic. The way he lifts her hair from her neck, she bites her lip, he grips her waist, she looks away. Anna felt afraid for the wrong mother. Something bad would happen. Something bad was happening. She didn't want to watch. But she forced herself to see, through the cracks in her fingers, what happened next. But no one sees what happens to the wrong mother that night, to her eyes and her tongue and her hair. It all takes place under the cover of his darkness, the humid cloak of his wings, the trap of his beak, all of his sharp, dark, vicious pecking. There is nothing to see. It's all left to the imagination. Then later, she sits by her window in the dim, shadowy bedroom. By candlelight, her expression registers pain. She lifts her nightdress to the tops of her thighs. There's a curled black feather on her leg, the shaft piercing her skin. 
She plucks it out, and a bead of blood plummets down her thigh, dropping onto the floor beneath her chair. Anna's hands flew to her mouth. She remembered this exact thing happening to her, the tiny soft black feather, the welling of her blood. It seemed so real, this memory. It was shocking to see it played out on screen, to realise it wasn't memory at all, but something that had happened to someone else. Not even that, to realise it had never happened at all, not in reality. Anna had always known that memories couldn't be trusted, but she was shocked all the same. She could still feel the pinch of pain as she plucked a feather from her thigh. She could vividly remember seeing the blood well out of the tiny hole in her skin. But that was a fiction. All the past is a fiction. The past what she thought of as her childhood. It was only a film she'd watched. A stupid fairy tale that gave her nightmares. It was the dream and the film all entangled together in the soft knots of her brain. The wrong mother sits before a mirror. She cuts off her hair with a pair of silver scissors. Her hair is black and glossy and falls away from her in silken ropes. She cuts her hair short, leaving just an uneven shock to halo her head. With her hair gone, she is even more beautiful than before. You see the hollows of her cheeks, the darkness under her eyes. When she looks into the mirror again, she sees him standing behind her and gasps. In her only true act of resistance in the film, she wrenches the mirror away from its stand and throws it across the room to where he should be standing, but suddenly no longer is. The mirror smashes and a shard of it curves through the air, pierces her skin, slides through her ribcage and stabs her in the heart. How utterly depressing, Anna thought the first time she manages to stand up for herself. It kills her, and the man-bird is completely free, untouched by death. Even when the police come for her body, there's no mention of a man, no mention of a husband at all. It makes you wonder if there was ever such a person, or whether the whole thing was just in her head. This is infuriating too. Now the viewer doubts her sanity, her recollection of events, her victimhood. Perhaps she was only ever abusing herself, like a Victorian girl putting needles inside a urethra, having hysterics and crying rape. Anna was infuriated by the ending of the film. It's so stupid, so pointless. She recalled her parents arguing about it, her father saying that the woman had lost her mind, that she was a fantasist and weak-minded and insane, her mother crying with frustration, insisting the real story is precisely that no one believes her. It's too easy for the husband to drive his wife out of her mind. He can torment her and no one will ever believe it. Anna couldn't recall how the argument had ended. She had an image of her mother sitting in the kitchen, holding her head in her hands. When she came close, her mother said, Don't come near me. I don't want you anywhere near me. But Anna couldn't remember if it happened after this argument or some other time. Anna did remember there had been many, many arguments. She remembered the silence after her father had gone, but no one ever spoke to her about her father leaving. After the night of her dream, he was simply no longer there. She gathered the courage to ask her mother if he was coming back. Her mother said, No, you made sure of that. That was all she ever said on the matter. She turned cold and silent. Some days she wouldn't even look at Anna. Other days she stared at her, as if inspecting her for signs of something. Anna didn't know what. For months afterwards, Anna wrote letters to her father, apologising for everything she must have done to drive him away and promising to be better. She would try to be pretty, 
She promised to grow up beautiful. She swore she would, even though there were no signs of this being likely. She wrote letters to her mother too, but ripped them up and threw them in the fire. Anna was sure her father would eventually forgive her and come home. When he didn't, she began to wonder if he had ever been there in the first place. Her memories of him were so few, and now so polluted by her dream images, she realised she had come to think of him as a fiction, someone she had made up, no more or less real than a character in a film. Anna stopped the film before the credits and rewound it. While it was rewinding, she went into the kitchen to pour herself a glass of wine. She opened the kitchen cupboard and took out a glass. She dropped it on the floor. Was it an accident? Let's say it was. But then she took out another glass and dropped that one too, deliberately. She liked it, and she didn't want to stop. She dropped the glasses on the floor, one after the other, smashing each one to smithereens. She cut her foot, watched a ball of blood roll down between her toes. She stood for a long time barefoot in the broken glass, and the thought occurred to her that she should be filming this. It would make an excellent piece of film. Maybe she could cut up her mother's film and make something new out of it, some kind of installation, a new narrative to make sense of the disjointed, disconnected scenes of her childhood. It was satisfying to break all those glasses and to know that whatever happened, they could never be put back together again. The glasses had ceased to exist. There was something else now. But she wasn't sure how she would move from the spot in the kitchen. The floor was covered in broken glass, sheer shards of fine crystal shattered over the tiles. She would cut her feet badly if she tried to step out of there. She'd have to pick out a path carefully. Perhaps she ought to telephone someone to come and help. In the other room, the film stopped rewinding and Anna heard it whir and click and begin to play again. Soft strains of music floated through to the kitchen. It was strange that it started playing by itself. She couldn't remember if that's what videotapes always did. She was thinking about it when she heard footsteps in the hallway. He was walking slowly, his shoes clicking against the old terracotta tiles. Anna could hear the scrape and swish of his palms running over the wallpaper. Is someone there? she said but the words were choked and strangled in her throat. There was no answer, only the sound of his skin brushing against the walls. Anna grabbed a large slice of broken glass, held it in her fist like a weapon, cutting her own palm on its edge. There couldn't be anyone in her house. If someone had broken in, she would kill them and no one could blame her. It was self-defence. She heard him stepping into the kitchen, crunching glass under his shoes. She couldn't help it. She closed her eyes. She didn't believe in ghosts, but she could smell him, trash and blood. She could hear the rustle of his wings. In the darkness that followed, Anna broke open a pearl of memory. It was a hard stone lodged in her throat for more than fifty years. It stopped her from eating, from laughing, from speaking. It was a tiny thing she'd kept hidden from herself, inside herself, and now she coughed it up shining with blood and caught it in her fist. It was so small, but it was like splitting the atom. Such a tiny thing. What a big surprise inside. She huddled under the bed covers, her knees pulled up to her chin. The dream had been terrible, but worse now. Her father was outside the bedroom door, knocking gently. Little heart, little heart, he called out. He sounded like himself, 
but Anna had seen him in his mask of feathers and bones. She knew, when he entered the room, that he would smell strange and look strange, and whatever he'd done to Anna's mother, he would do to Anna. He always said he loved her more despite her ugliness. He always said she was his little heart. Come out, he called from the other side of the door. Do as you're told, child. And there was a silence, a long, empty silence. Anna wasn't sure if he'd gone away. She crept out of bed silently and tiptoed to the door, pressing her ear to the wood. She heard the haunting sounds of music. Carefully she opened the door. Her father was gone, but the music was a little louder and clearer out on the landing. It was coming from downstairs. The house was completely dark. She was the lightest thing in it in her little white nightdress. She tiptoed down the stairs following the sound of music. It came from behind the cellar door. Anna wanted to hear the music more. It was beautiful and enchanting like the sound of a playground or a fair. There was laughter in the music and children's voices. Anna opened the cellar door and the music swelled up. She switched on the light. It was a bare bulb hanging over the stairs, too dim to illuminate much. But Anna could see wet moss on the stone steps and water lapping below. She picked her way down the stairs and when she reached the water's edge, she stepped in and the music rose up and swallowed her. It washed her up on a dark sand beach, at the top of which was her house, identical in every way but very much in the wrong place. So, it must be a dream, Anna decided. It's just a dream that feels real, or something real that feels like a dream. Don't be afraid. The music was loud and insistent now. It drew her to her feet, and as she stood, he flew close to her, his wings spread out, and his beak pushing towards her. Won't you join the dance, he said, with his voice like dirt. He enfolded her in the humid embrace of his wings. She couldn't stop him. She was too small to stop him. Besides, she loved him. He tore against her flesh, his beak sliced open her thigh, cutting through the meat right down to the white. Pink and tender flesh clung to the raw bone. He was only celluloid and ink. He was only a memory a dream of her father, but he was teeming with dead girls under his wings. He called them all Little Heart as he dug his beak into their soft fleshes. If it were a dream, she would wake up now, now, now. He was lost in his reverie of feeding. He bent his neck to suck up her blood, and she saw the opportunity of his bare skin under the feathers, skin that was thin and fragile. A slice of glass went in easily, gently to that soft spot. He groaned and spurted blood over her hands and face. Anna felt the moment coalesce in her hands. She felt the moment when he ceased to exist and the broken thing came into existence. At the moment of breakage, her father was graphically reduced to his core, a broken, bloodied, ugly, feathered thing, a little heart that spewed blood until it finally ran dry. She watched him fold into himself like black-winged origami and disappear. Now, in the precise moment of breakage, Anna experienced beauty. She experienced it as a child breaking her father's heart. She relived it now as herself, bursting open to the knowledge of herself, tearing down the trash-winged, ugly celluloid shape of her father slicing the film into thousands of plasticky pieces. Her own beauty erupted from her hands, 
struck like lightning, rained a broken glass on the floor, a bright glitter of rain crashing against the stone. It was a big surprise to see all that beauty. She wished she had known it was there inside her all along, waiting for its moment to live. Here we are, Georgina Bruce. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, We've just heard your story, uh, Little Heart, and uh, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. First of all, just about yourself. Um, Great. Well, thanks very much for reading this story. It's really um, wonderful to hear it read, and I thought it was you brought so much to it with your reading. I really felt quite honoured by it, so yeah, I loved hearing it. It was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so my name's Georgina Bruce, and I am a writer. I'm also a teacher, or perhaps they should be the other way around, because <laughs> one of those things definitely earns me a lot more money than the other. Um, I, um, I live in Edinburgh, and I work in Edinburgh at the College of Further Education here, which is currently on lockdown but um and I'm missing it a lot um and yeah that's me what do you teach I teach a variety of subjects all connected to English so uh, there's English I teach communication studies I teach literature creative writing oral presentation skills, so anything to do with speaking, reading and writing. Those are the subjects that I teach. But Edinburgh is a pretty cool place yeah, to live. I'm, it is very cool, actually. <laughs> it's like very cool. Mm, in both senses, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> well, it's really lovely and warm at the moment, actually, and sunshiny, so that's nice. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot going on here well there's normally a lot going on here um in terms of sort of the arts and music and writing and all of that so it can be um quite a fun place to live definitely i'm guessing the festival isn't going ahead this year it's not no it's not which is which i'm actually i'm not really disappointed about i'm going to be honest because it's a pain um, when the festival's on. You can't get anywhere and and uh, my work has always started at that point after the summer holidays, so trying to get across town is a pain. Um, but, yeah, I know, I know that's not the right thing to say. People are very disappointed, but I've always thought that there should be a fallow year anyway. It's quite nice to, you know, space things out a bit. Before we came on, you were saying something about teaching English in various places. Yeah, I mean, this is my sort of accidental teaching career. (laughs) It wasn't the plan, really. But um, after I left university, I got a job teaching English in Japan. And really, it was, you know, I wanted to go to Japan. Was that the um, Japanese government scheme? No, it wasn't, because that probably would have been more cushy than what I did. (laughs) I think it was quite well paid that, yeah. that scheme. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think they were pretty well off, and some of the language schools really weren't as generous or supportive. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not. It, it was a great experience, but 
I was working for a private language school, so it was a bit more emphasis on targets and, uh, you know, retaining students and making money. So where in I Japan was it? I was in a little town called Nago in the north of Okinawa, which is the southernmost island of Japan. So it's a sort of subtropical island. Sounds nice. Sounds, uh, yeah, really beautiful. I really, I especially enjoyed the rainy season with just rains, as the name suggests. It's really dramatic and fun experience, if a bit damp. Were you writing when you were in um, Japan? A little bit. I was, I was writing a lot of letters and sort of diaries and things like that, but I wasn't really writing fiction at that point. I kind of came to writing fiction a bit later in life. I, well, I actually wrote a lot of fiction when I was uh, growing up and a teenager, but um, then I kind of gave it up in my 20s, and it wasn't really until my sort of early 30s that I picked it back up again and thought, I'm going to give this another go, so... Yeah, it took a while to get going with that. I mean, that neatly leads us to your writing. So um, mm. you've got the, I was just reading, we were talking about that, your Honeybones uh, mm. website and looking at your some of your latest stuff. It's a beautiful website. And you've got some absolutely fantastic uh, reviews for your, it's a collection, This House of Wounds, yes. is that right? Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, actually, my brother designed the website for me, which, which was really kind of him. And that's his day job, designing and coding and things like that. So it was very generous of him to do that for me because it is really great. That's mm. good. But I'm looking at the website now and reading some of the reviews again. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, before I had read these reviews, there's one here that jumps out by uh, Paul Sinjin McIntosh. Uh, and he he talks about fairy tale, tale motifs, red queen, sorceress, crows, princess, beast, etc. Uh, he says fragmented, discontinuous, subjective glimpses like a mystic marriage of Angela Carter with J.G. Ballard. I must admit, when I read it, Angela Carter, I thought, whoa, Angela Carter. I didn't get J.G. Ballard, I must say, but uh, uh, Angela Carter definitely is she an influencer? Is that just a she definitely is an influence, actually, and sort of the fairy tales are very much an influence. I always loved fairy tales and I really loved Angela Carter's kind of reinterpretation of fairy tales and just what she brought out of them that seemed very new and shocking, I think, at the time that she did it. And yeah, so that that is a huge influence on me, I think. And I definitely see those kind of like similar motifs that go through a lot of my stories and it was quite funny when I was listening to you reading Little Heart I was kind of slightly going oh I've written about this quite a lot these sort of you know tropes and motifs that seem to come up over and over again in my stories which uh, kind of was quite interesting to see from a different perspective. Yeah well I, I went the other thing I was thinking when I, was, when I was reading it, was um, very kind of depth psychology stuff, both the Fro Freudian, if we can talk about Little Heart now, both the Freudian thing and also a Jungian, which ties in with the fairy tales, mm. I suppose. 
So, so tell us, tell me about the story. What is it about in your terms? So, um, yeah, it's, it's really, <laughs> for me, it's about a woman who's kind of confronting her buried past, basically. You know, the death of her mother has kind of precipitated this curiosity and interest in her past and also given her that a bit of confidence to explore it because she sort of feels that she can face it now but when she does come face to face with it I think it's, it's both different than what she expected and she's different than what she expected so it's a kind of yeah a tale of uncovering the past and then what do you do with what you've uncovered, which in her case, I think is quite traumatic childhood experiences. So my take on, and I don't know if this is true, but, mm. you know, she has the scene where we've just heard that she sees her father as the bird man with the mm -hmm. mother and the mother's got blood on her. And they appear to be doing what Freud would have called, she appears to observe the primal scene which was mm -hmm. a big thing in, um, if you saw that in, in Freudian times, you're going to have to, you have to pay a lot of money for analysis down the years. Is that what was I going on? the short answer is I don't 100% know. Okay. Because, because it's a secret and it's a secret that Anna's kind of kept from herself over the years. So, um, and my characters without wanting to sound too like mystical about the process of writing but often I am writing about characters who really hide a lot and they don't kind of give forth their inner worlds you have to puzzle it out so that's certainly the case with Anna in that story I think for me she's a she's someone who certainly has experienced some kind of abuse in her family you know, this sort of age-inappropriate stuff. She's been taken to see this film, which is obviously not suitable for a child. And that's actually explicitly said, isn't it? That's Absolutely. Stated. So even just that by itself is a, this sort of a traumatic thing that she's never really come to terms with. And then this relationship between her parents and between herself and her parents just seems a very inappropriate is probably the mildest word for it and I think she's very frightened of both her parents and especially her father and there is that sort of fear of sexuality and sort of witnessing their sexuality and experiencing it as a violation. I mean, uh, she, but she also has a very adoring relationship towards her father as well. A certain, a, a, at least, yeah, a and I think that I think that's how it is with children. Is you know, like we love our parents no matter what. Very often we don't, you know, if your parent treats treats you badly, you don't think, well, they're a horrible person. You think I'm a horrible person because I'm being treated badly by you know my mum or my dad and and so I think that you know she does love her dad and it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter what sort of person he is but she splits him into two parts doesn't she she splits him into this um idealized man whose briefcase smells of uh, 
ink and yeah. paper, is it? And uh, and yet he's this this bird man, this carrion bird, this quite mm-hmm. disturbing yeah, symbol. Yeah, and I think that yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's something that happens actually in a lot of my stories is that is this splitting into you know in a sort of everyday quotidian reality and then this sort of fairy tale strange version of people and events and they sort of become different it's like they go through the mirror they are you know a different kind of version of themselves and and again i think with and I was going to say, reading a lot of um, stories over the past, particular over the past six months to a year, noticed how something happens. This we end up with a speculative fiction, really. Uh, now, whereas ghost stories t- and horror stories tended to be realistic in a realistic world, a naturalistic world with with a bolt-on supernatural bit, and then we get people like um, keep going about Robert Aikman, and who's he was still naturalistic, except he's use it and the, the world worlds that his characters live in are quite unnervingly disturbing just been reading shirley jackson who's another um, mothers and daughters as well i suppose is a theme of hers and uh, where, where she will take a, a very naturalistic world and then twist it you know until it becomes very odd and i suppose there's that magical realism thing that was com- going on your story it seemed to me vibrated between oh it it, it weaved in you know the woman's a teacher at the start of it that's very you know realistic naturalistic and 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 then it gets very dreamlike yeah absolutely i mean um you mentioned shirley jackson who i'm a huge fan of shirley jackson i think i think she is brilliant at doing that sort of twist into a different world which is very disorienting and i and i think for me that's like the heart of horror or the heart of the gothic is that you know that's what's frightening that the real world could shift or twist or or change and it's suddenly something different that you don't understand that's that's much more frightening or absolutely and and of course it, it there are a number of stories that play with insanity as well and so i suppose a feature of psychosis is that the person is having is, is flooded with um, images and archetypes from the unconscious and can't tell the difference between well if, if there isn't there isn't a subjective difference between their reality and their flooded unconscious contents you know it's like these symbols and things the carrion yeah that's really that's um really true as well and and it, it's also an experience that people have in abusive relationships where their reality is kind of determined by another person. I mean, I think in particular the sort of parent-child relationship where, you know, the kind of what's what's even real can be reality isn't real because it's cast by the parent or it's cast by the abuser um, in order to have control over somebody a classic sort of exactly. gaslighting by the by the abuser you know to make the the victim be unsure of her own reality exactly and i think all of those ideas are very kind of i think very frightening there's this sort of history of psychiatry and the 
treatments that were done on wayward women, you know, to kind of um, make them sane because they had crazy ideas about, you know, crazy notions about their independence or abilities or sexuality or whatever. So I think that kind of idea of, you know, what's real and who determines what's real and what other stories are perhaps going on secretly or under the surface or with a twist of the light. I think those ideas just kind of keep me so interested and I keep coming back to them over and over again. I mean, there's a quite postmodern themes, aren't they, about reality, what is reality, is it? We all have our own, and and who plays with it, and who uh, who feeds it to us. The so she kills the the well, bird man in the end. I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, but that seems to be quite cathartic for her, doesn't it? That it's, from my reading, it she's, that seems to benefit her that she kills this. Uh, yeah, thing. definitely. There's there's this moment where she has power, and it extends back into the past as well. So it is very cathartic and healing and it allows her to see herself in a different way when she kind of breaks out of this sort of protective story that she's built around herself and she's able to go back into the moments that she's kind of built this shell around then she suddenly sees that she's different than she always thought she was and she has beauty that she never thought she had, which I think, yeah, I I think it's a happy ending. <laughs> but it, but it but it is it is a positive ending, anyway. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, and I think some I feel like that's kind of important sometimes to kind of look at positive outcomes because often I think in horror, especially when it has this sort of psychological element or writing about abuse and 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 frightening things i think those stories often can end quite badly but that's not how those stories always end people overcome you know terrible things and i think and i think it's important to show you know that it's possible to overcome that there's catharsis there can be healing and all sorts of other things can happen and all sorts of powers can be accessed so no i think that's true and i think sort of the horror genre um in the old days the very old stuff the the good people usually mm-hmm. won um and then and then you get um i suppose lovecraft and people like that where it's all doom and nobody's going to win nobody comes out of this yeah. alive so <laughs> And then uh, that carries through, and we have the gore period. But uh, you know, absolutely, I think stories as a whole, are, and the reason we listen to them and read them is because they, in some sense, give us moral lessons about how how we should yeah, try and live. I, I agree. And if that, yeah, to abstract one from that story, it would be that you know, um, you may have been um, hampered in your life by forces beyond your control, powerful forces to shape your reality. But in the end, you can take the power back. And you can overcome that and free yourself. I think yourself. there's also something about creativity in there as well, because she's she's an artist, and you know she has this creative instinct, but it is 
well, a destructive instinct, I suppose. She wants to smash things apart and find out what makes them work and what's underneath them. So it's like she's always had this instinct and she keeps coming back to this idea and this theme in her own work and her own creativity. And eventually it does yield this insight and this moment of healing for her. So I think there's there's something... I think there's quite a few positive threads in that story, actually. <laughs> it's nice to have. It's nice to have them, um, and some luscious imagery, really very rich, dark imagery, which which seems to be throughout your work. So um, that kind of leads us on to saying, what are you working on at the moment? Okay. This is the question that I've not been looking forward to because um, not a lot is the short answer. I'm kind of. After I finished writing Honeybones, which is my novella, which is out at the moment, I kind of felt that I'd come full circle a little bit. And, you know, these these kind of themes, a lot of them that are explored in, in Little Heart as well, I felt like I'd come to the end of the road with those. So I'm, so I'm playing around with some new directions and some kind of different ideas something with a more science fictional theme at the moment sounds good i like a bit yeah of me fiction. too in fact i i you know stories in my collection quite a few of them are science fictional it's a beautiful cover as well if that if that this house of wounds the cover with the lady with the big hair and the flowers. It's spectacular, that's, that's, isn't it? It's a, it's an artist called Katrin Veltstein. She's a German artist, Steen, yes, probably. I can't remember which way around the E and the I go. Um, she's a, a digital surrealist. That sounds good. It, look, it looks good as well. So, you know, she's got the... Um, her, and who is this woman in the picture with the birds in her hair and... Uh, yeah, good hand. question. I don't know. That's an interesting, interesting question to meditate on. Who is she? But it certainly like, felt like a brilliant image for the cover of that book. Oh, well, okay. That's a, that's a mystery. I love the title as well. This House of Wounds is a oh, lovely title. very much. It's, it's a line from one of the stories in the book, and it was the editor who picked it out for the title. So yeah well picked and um as, as i said this house of wounds is both beautiful and horrific sounds exactly my kind of thing so where could where i'll put a link in the show notes so where can people get hold of a copy so the publisher's website is published by uh independent press called undertow publications undertow, undertow yes who are very um successful small press they've won the shirley jackson award um quite a few times or been nominated for it and won it and they're based in canada but i believe they do free shipping around the world um so you can buy it directly from them or it's available on amazon or you can order it from your favorite independent bookshop great uh, i think they're probably having a tough time at the moment independent bookshops and so it'd be good if we could do it that way but otherwise from undertow or from amazon okay well that's really yeah that's really great 
really enjoyed talking to you about that. I loved reading the story and uh, I hope uh, people liked it Thanks as much as so I did. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And like I say, I, I really, really enjoyed your reading of it. I thought it was fantastic. So. I enjoyed reading it. I mean, that's probably what comes out that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the, as I said, I loved the imagery in it. So. Um, I was just going to say, I do write my stories to be read. And when I'm writing, I read them out loud to myself. So they are meant, they're meant to be read aloud, definitely. Well, stories were meant to be read aloud. And I know um, um, there's, a, there's a difference between storytelling and, and reading a story that's a, that's a written story. But certainly I did a, a series of live uh, readings, you know, last year, and it really improved my writing as well because you can see the audience and how they react to the different bits that you do and you think, oh, okay, that's what people like, or, you know, that seems to work. So definitely, definitely, it's, uh, reading stories well, is Well, thanks cool. so much, Tony. That's really great to talk to you. Brilliant. Lovely to talk to you. I'll put, I'll put links to your website and I'll put a link probably, well, I'll put Undertow actually in, in the thing, so it'd be good to support that. Well, something strange happened to my audio in that. Georgina's was fine, but mine was very odd, so I'm going to do my best to try and fix it. And this week's call to action is to thank my supporters on Patreon. So a big thank you to all my Patreon supporters. These ongoing pledges help me continue to produce the podcast, paying as they do for hosting and other ongoing costs. If you have enjoyed listening to this story and the other episodes I've put up over the past six to seven months, I would like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon to help me produce more of what you enjoy. As well as helping me out to do this work, Patreons get exclusive content, usually in the form of stories, either Kindle versions or more often as uh, MP3 audio stories that are not available for free elsewhere. There are three tiers. The smallest one is the $1 a month. That's the ghouls. And I've introduced my vampire tier, which is uh, the generous amount of $20 a month. And for that, I will actually read a story for you, either one of mine dedicated to you, or read a story of your choice dedicated in the podcast to you yourself. So if you did feel that you could become a Patreon and support the podcast with a pledge on an ongoing basis, you would earn my undying gratitude and help me to keep on going. So thank you very much in advance for those who are going to sign up. Thanks in my heart to all of you who continue to support me. It really does mean a lot. Thank you.